Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 4, Episode 12, Chris Angel is a Douchebag. And I don't know if that's a true statement or not. I've never met the man. But the Chris Angel coded dude in this episode certainly is. There's a sleight of hand in this one. Ha ha. Since it's about magicians. That really works well as a metaphor for the entire series and Chuck's grand plans. You can't con a con man. This episode was written by Julie Siege and directed by Robert Singer. Since Dean learned Sam's secret about working with Ruby earlier this season, Sam had been really trying to honor his promise not to use his powers, but the last few episodes had begun to erode his resolve. That final conversation in the previous episode, with Dean confessing the extent of his trauma from his time in hell, combined with the revelations from the prior episode about just how long he'd spent there and the fact that he'd broken and become the torturer, left Sam feeling unsure about Dean's state of mind. This is truly the beginning of Sam's he's just not strong enough, I have to be the one arc that he carries for the rest of the season. Sam, especially because of what Ruby's whispering in his ear, is manipulated into believing that Dean's weak and capable and just wrong about what needs to be done or what they have the power to do. But it also lays out some psychological background on Dean that I think gets overinterpreted in fandom sometimes, or not, I, I don't want to say it's misinterpreted by fandom, but it gives Dean these characteristics as if they are some foundational aspect of his personality. And I think they're more the result of recent trauma Not that he doesn't always have recent trauma of some sort, but this very specific issue that he's dealing with in season four in in this current run of episodes. I don't think it reveals some greater, deeper truth about who Dean is as a person, but it does give us a, a window into his mental state at this particular time. And it's not good. It's a really dark, ugly, dirty window. Yeah, he's hit a massive mental wall that we have context for. He's mentally stuck on his complete failure, his total lack of worthiness after his abject failure in hell, and what that says about him as a person. He can't reconcile it. He did what he did after decades of torture crafted specifically to drive him to that. It's not that Dean inherently would have found torture enjoyable. It's that He was tortured into believing that that was his only respite or relief and tortured close to the border of demonhood. His soul had been corrupted by it all. And the fact he's disgusted with himself about it now proves that the narrative wanted him here. So that's where he is. Only the narrative, that is Chuck's story, keeps trying to use him, keeps trying to deliver lessons that Dean doesn't learn in the way that the story kept pushing him to learn. Which is a major contrast to Sam, who keeps buying into the narrative and believing what it's trying to tell him through Ruby's whispered lies, or truths that are very, very manipulative. And in this week's story, we get a view on that through three old magicians looking back at their glory days with regret, 
that it all seems to be in their past or gone forever. When one of them reveals the greatest trick, they could have it all back again with this one neat trick. They can choose themselves over everything else and start over again in the prime of their lives. They don't have to give in to the inevitable, but there's a heavy price. And that pushes Sam to question Dean about what they'll be doing when they're 60. And Dean is being realistic, but he's only being realistic from his present mental state of feeling entirely unworthy of anything else. Poor Sam is basically looking for a pep talk from a dude coping with a massive bout of nihilistic depression. And Dean has already scraped out the bottom of his emotional barrel and tried to put on a brave face for Sam, and he just can't. He's reached his a rock bottom for him. Between that and Ruby pushing at him with a potential way out, like the magicians feeling pushed to accept their friend's self-destructive solution to their own problems, only Sam didn't have someone he trusted and who cared about him to snap him out of his desperation and willingness to trust Ruby here, because he'd already deemed Dean to be too compromised, too weak to see reality like Sam believed he could. And that's just sad. Another thing that we need to discuss about this episode is the diversion that the old magicians chose specifically to shake Dean, sending him to the chief to be had. I really hope Dean had fun with that one. So Queer Dean content ahoy. We'll be discussing it, don't worry. And on that note, we will have quite a bit more to say about this episode than last week's, at least. Thank goodness. Before we get into it, we have a very few interesting bits of extras this week. Another cheesy CW promo video and the network arena for the story, which is a short outline of the concept of the episode before it's even begun being written to get approval from the network. Like, yes, this all sounds great. Or no, we don't like these ideas. You're going to have to revise that into something different or that doesn't work or whatever. But it's presented to the network. So it's literally like a page and a half outline of the entire episode. Attached to that same document is the outline for 414 Sex and Violence which shows just how much the concept for that particular episode evolved from the original pitch. But we're just going to focus on this episodes from now because we can wait two more episodes to talk about sex and violence. But the concept for this episode remained fairly solid and fairly close to what the original pitch had been. So that's a page and a half of writing. That's very interesting to read. My tag for this episode only contains a single page of posts. So fewer than 10 posts. But there's a couple of old rewatch posts that may be of interest there, so I will link those. And with that, I think we can get into the then segment. The then segment does not mince words. It goes right into Sam and Ruby's relationship with another demon accusing Sam of the things that he does with his little demon in the dark. And it shows us blatantly. <laughs> The whole uh, uncomfortable sex scene. Even though the show is still hiding the biggest secret that they've hinted to and alluded to repeatedly of Sam knowing what he has to do to strengthen his powers. That darkest bit of Sam's secret that he still has not revealed to Dean, despite Dean having pretty much laid himself bare to Sam about everything that's happened to him in hell. 
we get visuals of Sam then exercising that demon with his mind with a voiceover of Dean telling Sam, do you even know how far off the reservation you've gone? How far from human? Dean asking Sam why he trusts Ruby so much and Sam replying, because she saved my life. Sam then failing to exercise Alistair. His powers have weakened or Alistair is just that strong. And then the scene with Sam and Ruby, where Ruby is like, your powers have gotten flabby, you need to tone up. And Ruby saying, you know what you need to do. And Sam saying, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. I said no. So we know that Sam has been resisting whatever it was that he'd been doing with Ruby that we, the viewers, still don't know at this point. But we, the viewers of the entire series, know is drinking more demon blood. And Sam has been on the wagon. As long as he stays on that wagon, he doesn't have to tell Dean that that's what he had done to strengthen himself. Even the angels apparently don't know that. Yet the show is using even the then segment. The entirety of the then segment just now was all about Sam and Ruby and his demon exercising powers. And that is the key. That is all the information they wanted us to have before going into this episode. Nothing about Dean and his revelation last week about hell. This episode is going to be Sam's problem. And again, is one of the reasons why season four only improves on rewatch. Because things that you may judge Dean for, his attitudes towards Sam and Ruby in season four, the first watch... Once you have the context for the entire arc, you can go back and watch it with fresh eyes. And it's like a completely different experience. And this entire arc gets much, much darker. Which brings us to now. A street magician flipping up a board and a heart turns into a living dove. As the camera pans up across some banners hanging from a light post, welcome to Magic Week the International Association of Magicians in Sioux City, Iowa. We cut to the interior of a bar where magicians are in there doing little card tricks or just having a drink. And an older man is trying to do a card trick with the bartender, except he fumbles the cards. His hands aren't as dexterous as they once were. While another magician in a tacky red cape is across the bar, mocking him like, oh, yeah, great. And his assistant even scolds him. It's like, just shut up and finish your drink. The bartender is trying to be pleasant and encouraging towards this older magician, while the younger guy just continues to mock him. When the younger magician comes over, he's very drunk. He spoils the trick by pulling the card out of the older magician's pocket. And the bartender even scolds him. He's like, why are you so mean? Why can't you just leave the old guy alone? That hits the old guy. Later on in the theater, there's a Chris Angel douchebag impersonator type guy. That sort of snazzy, high-tech, heavy metal sort of vibe to him. And the old magician and some of his friends are sitting in the audience watching disapprovingly of this flashy new magician. It turns out it's just a rehearsal and the magician on stage cuts off the music and stops. He's just like very pissy. And and as the older magician's two friends say in unison, what a douchebag. 
yes, the guy is a total douchebag. He's just got this stage persona that's very magnetic and whatever. But man, as soon as the attention's off him, he's just a douchebag. But poor Jay, the older magician from the bar earlier, is just like, just give it a rest, whatever. He's not in a great mood. He's feeling his feelings about being old and past his prime and how sad it is that the three of them are just sitting there thinking about the good days, but they're trying to make fun of this new guy. But Jay is like, he's not the joke. We are. We're washed up. Jay is like, yeah, he may be a douchebag, but he's playing the main stage. That used to be us. But now we can't even afford an assistant. And before his friend can talk him out of it, Jay's like, I'm going to do the table of death tonight. And they both try to protest. They're like, you almost got killed the last time you did it 30 years ago. You're definitely going to get killed if you attempt such a difficult trick. I mean, just the title of it, not even knowing what the trick is. It sounds risky. It's not the table of puppies. It's the table of death. Later that night in a different theater, a tinier theater, Jay has his table of death all set up. Guy in the audience yawns like this is all just a bore. And Jay is in his tuxedo on stage talking about how this is not a trick or an illusion. This is just a feat of dexterity. And he's just going to escape these blades that are supposed to drop down onto him. One of his friends, the one that was trying to convince him that they weren't washed up or the joke or whatever, fastens him into these manacles that attach him to the table and a woman from the audience checks to make sure they're real and then a curtain drops around him and all you can see is the shadow of these blades hanging above him his friend is concerned that he's not going to be able to slip his manacles but the way jay's looking up at the blades above him we the viewer think yeah i don't think he really wants to slip them i don't even think he's going to try his other friends backstage and does the sign of the cross on himself like he's praying for his friend. The two friends exchange a look backstage like, we're sending our friend to his death, aren't we? The first one goes back out to the stage with a lighter, lights a fuse that starts the rope burning. Meanwhile, outside the hotel Patricia, the drunk magician in the red cape from the bar is finally staggering out and his assistant's like, yeah, our show's in an hour, make sure you're there on time. And he just waves her off and goes staggering down the street. As the fuse burns back in the theater, and we see the shadow of Jay's body lying on the table, and the knives suspended above him. The fuse reaches the rope, and it drops the knives, but it's not Jay who's stabbed. At that exact moment, the douchebag in the red cape and the top hat, walking down the street drunk, clasps his chest, falls to the ground, and is dead from 14 stab wounds. Meanwhile, back in the theater, Jay is alive. They open the curtains, and he takes a bow to a standing, stunned ovation. And as we watch blood soak the shirt of the dead magician on the street, we cut to the title card. After the title card, we cut back to the douchey Chris Angel impersonator doing some street magic, some up-close magic, with a deck of cards doing things that are just beyond and his whole shtick is that demons are giving him these magical powers and he casts them out and on the sidewalk is Sam and Dean watching on and Dean is just disgusted 
Dean just rolls his eyes and walks away. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. A fake demon possession. People actually fall for that crap. Meanwhile, Sam is defending magicians. He's like, yeah, that guy might be crap, but that's not all magicians. It takes skill. And Dean remembers that Sam went through a phase where he was really interested in magic. Dean is like, yeah, this actually offends me, though, playing at demons and magic when the real thing will kill you bloody. And Sam's like, yeah, like the guy who died of ten stab wounds, but it didn't cut his shirt and there was no knife. He wasn't robbed or anything. And stab wounds appeared on his body and he dropped dead like that. Real magic. And I always forget that this is a weird episode because we never once see the Impala during the entire episode. I don't know why. I don't know how they arranged the script or if the car was just getting maintenance done or what. But it's not in this episode at all. They're just always walking around town. You don't even see it like parked in the background of a scene. That's neither here nor there as far as the plot goes, but it's just an interesting observation. We cut to Sam and Dean interviewing the assistant of the guy who had been killed. And she's like packing up all these magical implements in her hotel room. And Sam and Dean managed to actually pose as law enforcement long enough with her and she believes it to answer their questions. While they're asking questions about if her previous boss had any enemies and she's telling them that, yeah, he would steal from other magicians all the time and blatantly and everybody kind of knew it. Dean is kind of weirded out by a long string of scarves she's pulling out of a bag. He's just clearly uncomfortable by all the magic. She lifts another thing and there's a live rabbit underneath it. She found something weird in Vince's cape, though. It's a tarot card with a ten of swords, somebody impaled by ten swords. That's especially weird considering the way he died, but also the fact that Vince apparently hated card tricks, never wanted them around, like he was mocking Jay in the bar earlier for doing card tricks. He just was against them on a personal level. So where did this card come from? We cut back to Jay who is in his hotel room running through some card magic with his own hands and very dexterously flipping one card out of the deck in a way that his previous demonstration at the bar would lead us, the audience, to believe, hey, he's substantially improved since his little brush with death. We're already suspicious of him. Maybe he's not as clumsy, old, and burnt out as he was claiming. When there's a knock on his door... And it's his friend, Charlie, the one who had been trying to talk him out of doing the trick, the one who had set the stage, locked him into the manacles, burnt the rope. He comes in and says, you going to tell me how you did it, how you survived that? So while Charlie's like, what happened? What? How were you able to do that? Jay says, here, let me show you something. And he shuffles the deck, then slides three cards out at random from the middle of the deck. And it's three aces. And he says, like, I've been working to do this, to just pull one ace out for years. And now suddenly I can pull three. Charlie tells him, well, you're still missing the ace of hearts. Instead of answering that, Jay is just like, I want to do the executioner tonight. And Charlie's like, are you trying to get yourself killed? But instead of Jay being depressed and coming at it from a point of this is how I want to die, He's going at it like, this is something that I think I can pull off 
after last night, I think I can do this. And Charlie's like, well, Houdini wouldn't even try it. And Jay's like, exactly. I could get back that fame. Charlie's like, I think you're pushing your luck. And Jay's like, it wasn't luck. Jay's like, clearly still trying to go out on a bang, though. He's like, well, if it doesn't work, what are we going to end up just doing birthday parties and bar mitzvahs like a couple of washed up jerks? And Charlie's like, well, it beats dying. And Jay's like, does it? Charlie's like, I would do anything for you, but I will not watch you die. I'll miss that show. And Jay's like, nah, you'll be there. You're always there for me. And then he tells Charlie to check his pockets. And he pulls out the Ace of Hearts. He did pull all four. And he's impressed. Jay is earnest in his statement that he can perform the executioner. He thinks he can survive. He wants to do it. And he wants Charlie's support. And Charlie finally gives it. Now we, as viewers at this point, are deeply suspect of Jay as being the person behind that death. Like, he'd somehow used magic to transfer his death to this other guy. But we, as viewers who've already seen this episode, who know the truth, understand the manipulation happening here, where the real sleight of hand is happening. Meanwhile, over in the theater again, we come in on Jay's table of death, and the Chris Angel guy, I keep calling him that, he has a name, Chip Dexter, I think it is, and whatever. It's irrelevant, because he's irrelevant. He's talking on the phone with his agent, pissed off that he's stuck in this little backwater doing this khaki show compared to Chris Angel, who's in Vegas doing Cirque du Soleil. And he's like, get me out of here. You got to get me better gigs than this. Generally being a douchebag. He's got the red light shining on him from the stage lights. And it's just, yeah, we know this is the bad guy show. You don't have to hammer it into us. His camera crew is getting set up, and the three older magicians are seated at a nearby table, and Chip is supposed to be interviewing them for his show, and he instantly turns on his I'm-a-great-guy persona, but he'd already burned that with us. We saw that who he really is when he was on the phone. He can't fool us, and he can't fool these three old magicians that Dean approaches. Dean introduces himself as a federal agent investigating Vance's death while Chip is interviewing Jay, being like, yeah, I'm showing my reverence to the guys who came before me. And But Jay knows who this guy really is. Chip can't even get Jay's name right. And I mean, I get all their names wrong a lot when I'm recording this podcast, but, you know, I can loop it later. He's not actually showing any respect to this man this interview is supposedly being created to demonstrate. When you're like, I want to interview these guys because I have so much respect, and then you can't even get his name right to his face? Holy cow, Chip. The two old guys that Dean's talking to are like, what a douchebag. And Dean's like, I couldn't agree more. Charlie's just sitting there letting his friend Vernon, whose name I just finally went and looked up because I got tired of calling him the other old guy, Um, (laughs) so much respect, Mittens, so much. Dean pulls out the tarot card and shows it to him because apparently Vernon used to use tarot cards as part of his act. And he's like, laughs, and he's like, I haven't touched a deck in years. Meanwhile, in the background, Charlie's just watching all of this uneasy. Dean asks if anyone else might use tarot cards in their act, and 
Vernon's just like, there's this guy down on Bleecker Street. And Charlie's like, oh, yeah, yeah. They just make up this whole story about this guy that Vance supposedly crossed a year ago, cost him 50 grand in royalties, and they send Dean to the exact address on Bleecker Street and tell him to ask for the chief. Dean thinks this is a legitimate lead because, of course, these little old guys are just going to give him straight information and didn't see through his disguise immediately that he was lying about being FBI. So Dean goes down there and it's this dark alley and the door has bars on it and Dean bangs on it and he tells the person who answers without a word that he's there to see Chief. There's some dude rifling through garbage in the background and police sirens going off and Dean is like, okay, this is really sketchy. But he hasn't twigged to the fact that he's been lied to yet. He's led down to this basement area, dimly lit, and is told to stay there and wait. Don't touch anything. When a door opens and loud, thumpy music is playing behind it and the light comes pouring out of it, silhouetting a very large man dressed in leather and carrying a whip who introduces himself with, Oh, you are really going to get it tonight, big boy. And that's when Dean realizes, I've been had. And the chief's like, yeah, you haven't been had until you've been had by the chief. The chief's then like, oh, before we get started, what's your safe word? And Dean is just like, holy crap, you are not a magician. This is not what I was expecting to find here at all. But this is the specific thing that those two old magicians sent Dean to, taking a cold read of him, realizing immediately that he was not a fed, that he was not who he said he was, that he was trying to find out information about their associate's death for some unknown reason to them. He was just a meddler to them. But again, magicians are very good at cold reading people. And this is what they thought would unsettle Dean the most. Not that he would be against it, but that this would be how to alert this dude that he'd been set up and framed. And it's always Dean who gets thrown into these specific types of awkward circumstances. It's almost never Sam who gets the queer thing thrown at him at all. But yet Dean gets sent to a BDSM club and a dom named Chief with a whip. Meanwhile, back at the motel, where Sam is doing research on the case, there's a knock on the door, and it's Ruby, all dressed in black leather, just like the Chief was, looking like she's about to whip his butt. And we know their relationship is sexual. So it just kind of makes you wonder what Dean's doing off with the Chief, and why he hasn't arrived back at the motel yet. Ruby's disdainful of Sam's choices in the world that he's dealing with these little magicians in this ridiculous case when the whole world's going to be engulfed in hellfire soon. And Sam's like, you got something against magic? Ha ha ha. Because, you know, he's defensive of these magicians. But again, there's very few cases when we actually see the toilet in the bathroom in Supernatural. We'll hear it flush. We'll know it's there because we'll see some glimpse into the bathroom in their motel rooms. But we don't often just see the toilet. Seat up and everything right in the middle of the shot. It is centered on screen in this shot between Ruby and Sam. There's some shit talking going on here, I think. 
But Ruby is here with an info dump, unrelated to the toilet talk, or possibly related to the toilet talk, to let them know that 34 seals have already been broken. They're more than halfway to the final seal breaking and Lucifer being freed and the apocalypse beginning. Ruby is insisting that someone needs to do something soon because the angels are losing this war. And Sam is like, that someone is me? No. Sam's like, I don't know how to stop any of that. Ruby's like, well, for one, you shouldn't be dicking around here with, you know, these little old washed up magicians. You should be out there maybe thinking about trying to get strong enough to take down the one who's actually breaking the seals. Lilith. She's basically telling him to step up. Because he's the only one who can do it. And Sam's like, yeah, it's not the psychic thing I have a problem with. And Ruby just says, yeah, I know what you have a problem with. But tough. It's the only way. And we, the viewers, will not learn what that is for a while yet. But we, the viewers who've seen this before, know. It's the blood drinking. There's so much in season four that is just hidden from us, the viewer. And Sam stands fast here. He still says no, and he's definitive about it. Ruby's like, this would all just be so much easier if you'd just admit to yourself that you like it. Just like Dean admitted last week that he liked the torture. I mean, that fact horrifies him now. Sam is like, I'm not that far gone because I won't admit that I like it. Sam tries to deny it, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And Ruby's like, oh, I don't, do I? And her drug dealer pusher act does not sway Sam. So she resorts to abject frustration. If you think you've got demon problems now, you just wait until the apocalypse starts. Oceans of people will die. But she leaves the ball in Sam's court and leaves, telling him to contact her when he's ready. Back at the theater, not long later, we have to assume, Dean comes in and finds Sam, and Sam asks Dean if he found anything useful, and Dean's like, not anything I ever want to talk about ever again. Meanwhile, Charlie and Vernon are waiting off to the side for Jay to take the stage. Charlie's holding the straight jacket that Jay will wear for the act, and they're both like, oh, he's crazy. He's gonna, you know, this is gonna kill him. Dean marches over to them, is like, ah, the chief... You think that's funny, right? And Charlie's like, uh, what, chief, not your type? He's just like, you know, I could have you both arrested for obstruction of justice. Vernon's like, how? You're not a fed. They judge Dean's ability to con people by saying it takes more than a fake badge to get past guys like us who con people for a living. So Sam and Dean awkwardly improvise and don't do much better than the fed act was. So they pretend to be aspiring magicians. Dean is very badly bumbling his way through explaining their new show. Sam's trying his best, but Dean unfortunately keeps talking. Sam at least knows the lingo. It's a brother act. Charlie turns to them as the announcer introduces Jay's act. Charlie turns to them and is like, if you want to learn something, stick around. Jay introduces his trick as one that even Houdini wouldn't have attempted And then we start cutting back and forth to Jeb Dexter. His name's Jeb, not Chip. I just want to call him Chip. Anyway, he's practicing his brooding posing in the mirror in his hotel room while loud music plays. Jay is getting strapped into his straitjacket with a noose around his neck. Another volunteer from the audience is checking to make sure it's real. 
He says he'll have 60 seconds to escape certain death. And once again, Charlie closes the curtains and Jay is backlit. And all we can see is his silhouette. The clock begins ticking down. Jeb Dexter is back in his hotel room, still making pouty faces at himself in the mirror like a douchebag. He's so obsessed he doesn't notice the rope snaking itself off its stand on the other side of the room and over the ceiling fan. Jay is struggling mightily in shadow to release himself from the straitjacket. It looks like he's totally failing to the point where even Dean is mumbling to Sam. He's not going to make it. Just as time expires and the platform opens, apparently hanging Jay... The noose drops over the ceiling fan in Jeb Dexter's room and yanks him up. When Charlie opens the curtain, Jay is fine. He's out of the straitjacket. The noose is safely off his neck and he is alive and he succeeded. The audience is enraptured. Dean is even amazed. He's like, that was freaking amazing. And Sam, who knows more about magic than Dean does, is like, that was not humanly possible. And then we cut to Jeb Dexter, spinning slowly by his neck from the ceiling fan. So clearly, these things that Jay is doing are being transferred to other people so that he can perform these superhuman tricks. Sam learns the next day that Jay was a pretty big deal back in the 70s, he even played Radio City, and Dean's like, okay, so what got him stuck in the where-are-they-now file? And Sam just sighs, and he's like, he got old. As if old age was the only reason for his waning skills. Like, that's the curse in itself. So they think that maybe Jay is trying to recapture his glory days by using some sort of spell that transfers the death to somebody else. And Dean gets up and walks across the room sighing like, I hope I die before I get old. Sam gets serious, though. Dean doesn't want to be serious about death and aging and life in general. He just wants to deal with this case and try and push on as if his life is normal, even though we know what he's been through and he can't do that. But Sam's like, do you think that's true? That we're going to die before we get old? And Dean's like, haven't we both died already? Sam's like, no, I mean, like, do you think we're still, we'll still be chasing demons when we're 60? Sam is not seeing an end to this road that they're on. If he doesn't do something to stop the apocalypse and then really put a stop to it so that it can't happen again, He's seeing that as a sort of hopelessness in a different way than Dean currently is. Dean's like, no, we'll probably be dead by the time we're 60 permanently because that's what his life experience has led him to believe. Hunters don't live past a certain age. And if they do, they turn into old cranks like Travis or Gordon or Bobby. Do you really want to be that? Dean's like, oh yeah, those are poster children for aging gracefully and Sam's like well maybe we'll be different Sam's trying to put a positive spin on this but remember Dean's mindset going into this what he's just begun to accept about himself admit to himself and try and find some way to process his whole experience in hell he feels he is completely unworthy of having been saved what Cass told him in the very first episode of this season What's the matter? You don't think you deserve to be saved? 
Now we know why, and we know how deeply held this belief is for Dean. He doesn't believe he deserves a life outside of hunting. All he can do is continue to save people because it's the best thing he can do, and he doesn't believe that it's going to change his fate or polish up his filthy soul or do anything to his own benefit. It's just what he knows, so he keeps doing it. And it's sort of dismal and a grind, but he can get enjoyment out of life by saving other people. That's all he feels he's got. And it's depressing because he is depressed. Sam was hoping for this pep talk here because he's still mulling over what Ruby told him about what they will be facing if Sam fails to step up and do his duty here that she's convinced him he's the only one who can do. And he is. He's the chosen one in that way, and he doesn't realize the full horror of that, but he also starting to see how broken Dean is. Dean's like, it ends bloody or it ends sad. That's just the life. That's just what hunting is and what it does to people. If Dean knew what Sam was wrestling with internally here, I absolutely do not think he would have tried to do the buck up, we're just going to keep on swinging until we can't anymore speech. I think he would have chosen other words for Sam in this moment, but he has no idea how deeply Sam is struggling right now because he's so wrapped up in his own pain. Sam's like, what if we could just win? And Dean's confused about this. And Sam's like, yeah, just put an end to all of it. Dean gets suspicious here. He's like, is there something going on that you're not telling me? And Sam denies it. But Sam's like, I wish there was a way we could go after the source cut the head off the snake. And Dean points out that there's always another snake. It's got a bajillion different heads and it's always coming at us. And I see exactly Dean's point here. But Sam sees it as Dean's despondency and inability to see the bigger picture. And they're both talking from entirely different viewpoints. And Sam is still lying his ass off to Dean about what this is really about and what Ruby told him, and what he's mulling over going back to her for. So Dean does not know how to talk to Sam about this in a way that will actually help Sam think differently about it than what the way Ruby is pushing him to. Rather than dwell on this depressing conversation, Dean suggests they go track down Jay and try and talk to him about what he might be doing. And Dean is going to go do some research on the tarot card. A little later on, Sam and Dean meet up again at the hotel where Jeb Dexter was staying because the maid found Jeb hanging from his ceiling fan by a noose. Dean found the hanged man tarot card on Jeb's body, and he believes that they are some sort of talisman used for the transference of death spell. They're absolutely convinced that Jay is now their killer, And both victims had been douchebags to Jay within a few hours of their demise. Dean asks Sam if he made any progress talking to Jay. And Sam's like, uh, he slipped me. And Dean's like, he's a 60-year-old. And Sam's like, he's a magician. He's tricky. Sam and Dean finally both manage to track him to his hotel room. As he goes in, they come around the corner, guns drawn, and just shrug at each other, and then Dean kicks the door down. They go in, guns pointed at Jay, and say, we know what you're up to, the bad mojo you're working to cheat death here. 
Jay is totally confused by all of it. Jay tries to tell them, there's no such thing as real magic. I've been around this my whole life. It's all just illusions and tricks and Sam and Dean are not buying this act at all. Sam and Dean still have Jay pinned in the corner at gunpoint and Dean's like, uh, something's not right here. And Sam agrees. If he really was the powerful witch, he would have gotten by them by now or tried to anyway. So they tie him to a chair. And as the camera pans around, Sam and Dean having a conversation on the other side of the room, talking about like, well, if it's not Jay, he's still benefiting from this. So it's probably someone he knows. He's selling out his shows, even if he's not the one working the magic. Dean's like, okay, so that's Vernon and Charlie on the list. Is there anyone else? And Sam's like, uh, we could ask him. And just then, the camera finishes its pan around Sam and Dean and returns back to show the chair that Jay had been sitting in with the rope just draped over the chair, and Jay has gone. He slipped the bonds again. Magicians? Sam and Dean are like, ugh, guess we should have seen that one coming. He couldn't have gotten that far, and they go out the front door as if they could catch him outside. And as soon as they're out the door... Jay comes out of the closet where he'd been hiding because his magic might be pretty impressive, but it's not real magic. It's sleight of hand. He didn't try to go out the window. He didn't try to go out the door. All he had to do was conceal himself so the audience couldn't see him and they would buy the trick happened. That is so much of the plot of this episode. The sleight of hand that nobody sees because the magician doesn't want you to see it until the end. And isn't that the plot of season four? You see all the steps in the trick leading up to the end, but you don't see the magic happening until the magician wants you to know, until Ruby tells you what she'd been up to all season long, until Zachariah tells Dean what the angels had actually been setting up all season long. You don't know the trick. And I mean, that kind of goes through the entire series. You don't know the trick of Chuck's involvement in all of these malicious little plots that have been enacted against Sam and Dean the whole story, coincidentally driving Dean to what we have to say is his lowest point ever that makes this little bout of depression in mid-season four look positively cheerful and benign compared to what he goes through in season 15. But Chuck is the magician who orchestrated this entire trick that drives Dean to his lowest point, where he doesn't even believe he himself is real. It's like, not even, oh, I just don't think I'm worthy of being saved. It's, was anything about any of this real? And all that suffering we went through was for nothing. And even the good stuff wasn't even real. It was all just a trick being played on us. This is the perfect metaphor for what happens in the bigger picture of the narrative. Meanwhile, the actual magician is just slightly off screen hiding in a closet until he's sure the coast is clear and nobody's looking anymore. It's like, hi Chuck, we see you there. Sam and Dean are in the lobby going, man, that guy is really good. He vanished on us. He could have found a back door. And some police cars roll up because Jay called them to provide a distraction. When a time is convenient, the magician who arranged the trick comes running down the stairs and tells the police, yeah, them, those are the two nutjobs who were just attacked me in my room. And Sam and Dean get arrested. Later that night in the theater, Jay is talking while Charlie polishes a shoe and waiting for Jay's show to go on. 
and he's telling them all about these two crazy guys who broke into his hotel room and were accusing him of using real magic in these tarot cards to kill people. Charlie's like, real magic? These guys are nuts. You're lucky to be alive. Jay's like, well, what if they're right? These things that I can do now, I haven't even been able to slip a pair of handcuffs in 30 years, and now all of a sudden I can do these tricks that I've never been able to do? Jay is, like, feeling guilty for the two guys who died, Jeb being hanged the same night he tried the executioner and succeeded. Charlie's like, you don't believe those guys that you had something to, you know, you didn't have anything to do with it. And Jay is like, no, no, I don't know. Maybe. Jay's like, maybe I shouldn't go on tonight. He doesn't want to feel responsible for somebody else's death, even if he thinks it's half crazy that he even feels responsible for the other two deaths. And Charlie is like, are you kidding, Jay? You've got to go on. There's a sold out crowd. Jay turns to Charlie with all seriousness and confesses that when he did the table of death the other night, his goal was to kill himself and he has no idea how he got out alive. And Charlie gives him the pep talk he needs to hear. He convinces Jay that when he was young, when they first met, Jay was truly incredible, the top of his game, and he'd never seen anyone better. And now he's recaptured that. He doesn't know how, but Charlie doesn't want him to waste this opportunity. That's how he's presenting it. And we all know, since we know how this episode ends, that Charlie needs him to do this trick so he can get his third death and rejuvenate himself. It's entirely selfish, but everything he's saying to Jay feels true because it is true, but it's not the whole truth. It's very much how Ruby is currently manipulating Sam. It's true, but it's not the whole truth. Charlie's like, just watching you now makes me feel young. This may be manna from heaven, meaning his rejuvenated abilities at magic. You don't just throw that away. It's a gift. You keep those, right? But in the darkest and worst possible way. The manna from heaven in Sam's case is demon blood, but we don't know that yet, but it makes this entire interaction between them make a lot more sense. They set up the table of death again. Charlie lights the fuse and then storms past Vernon as he gives him a look like, I can't believe we're doing this again, even though we know he talked Jay into doing it in the first place. And the audience watches in horror as the blades drop on him. But then Jay opens the curtains and he is absolutely fine. Moments later, someone backstage screams because they found Charlie's body. And Jay is horrified. If this really was real magic, Charlie had talked him into doing this trick again. Did he just kill his friend, his best friend? Sam and Dean meet up with Jay back at the hotel. Sam comes in and is like, thanks for dropping the charges. So they've been locked up in prison all day, unable to help. (laughs) But Jay now believes, and he knows that these two people who accused him of using real magic might be the only ones who know enough to help him figure out what is happening. And they go back to Pat's pub where this whole episode began. 
Jay is reminiscing about his friend Charlie and when they first met and they were just kids, really. And Jay's like, he was more than my friend. He was my brother. And he expresses that he should have listened to them when they tried to tell him that his show was killing people. It was one thing when the people who were dying were just douchebags to him. It's another thing entirely when the person who died was someone he cared about that much. He wants to help them figure out who is doing this. Sam breaks the horrible truth to him that whoever is doing this likes him and is probably close to him because everything they've done has been to his benefit. He's the one who's reaped the reward, gotten his career and skills back, his place in the spotlight, and it's targeted people who were antagonistic toward him until Charlie. But because Charlie is dead now, the suspicion immediately shifts to Vernon. Jay is like, no, 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 it's not Vernon. He wouldn't do this to Charlie. Dean then comes in with a line that is underscored with some intense string music that's very subtle, but dark foreshadowing here, where he's describing the use of real magic as sort of like crack. Once you get a taste for it, you sort of lose perspective on what's right and wrong. And we know that's a road Sam is going down with Ruby and drinking her blood and increasing his powers. Real magic, but it always comes with a price. Up in his hotel room, Vernon gets a call from someone and says, yeah, I'll be there in two shakes. I got something to tell you anyway. And then he leaves his room and Sam and Dean are waiting for him to leave so that they can sneak in and snoop around looking for those tarot cards or any sort of evidence that it was him who had done this. Because Jay obviously wants solid concrete proof before he accuses his friend of these heinous crimes because Vernon's his only remaining friend. There is a ton of stuff to sort through in the room, though, and Sam points out that they have lived their whole lives on the road. Everything he owns is probably in this room, and it's kind of like, wow, isn't that like you and Dean? Everything you own is in your car, and which isn't even in this episode. Meanwhile, it was clearly Jay that had called and created the diversion, drawing Vernon out to the theater, where he's looking up at the table of death, grimly as if he's aware that he's about to accuse his only remaining friend of killing their other friend and several other people besides. Vernon comes in and assures Jay that the convention has labeled Jay their number one headliner since all the other headliners are dead, kind of. Jay got the job, which only adds to Jay's suspicion of his friend in that moment, that he'd been doing exactly what Sam and Dean said trying to benefit him in some way instead of himself by killing these people who were standing in his way and giving him the magical power to succeed. Jay is like, a day ago, I would have been thrilled to be standing on this stage, but Charlie's gone. And Vernon's like, are you kidding? Charlie would have wanted you to go on. And Jay begins, is this really what Charlie would have wanted And how could you do that to him? You killed our friend just so that we could be back on top? Poor Vernon is confused and horrified by this accusation. What are you talking about? Just as Jay is about to come to the point after he accused Vernon of killing all those people and Charlie, a voice rings out and he's like, I wouldn't be so hard on him, Jay. He didn't do it. 
and he steps out of the shadows and it's Charlie, but he's young. And the actor who plays young Charlie is the son of the actor who played old Charlie, hence the perfect resemblance. Meanwhile, back in Vernon's hotel room, Sam and Dean are unable to find anything connected with real magic. It's just a bunch of old-timey magic tricks. Dean finds a poster in Vernon's collection of a magician from decades upon decades ago of a young man who bears a striking resemblance to Charlie, who is not dead at all, but apparently rejuvenated himself by his own apparent death. Jay and Vernon are questioning Charlie as to how old he really is, and he's like, well, technically about 28, but I've been around a lot longer than that. Apparently, P.T. Barnum gave him an old grimoire with the secret to real magic in it, and he's rejuvenated himself in this way several times before. Jay is all distraught. He's like, but my show, what, what I can do? And Charlie's like, oh yeah, that's just a different spell to give you a little taste of what's possible. Jay is like, you used me to kill those people. And Charlie's like, no, I used them to give you a gift. You wanted those things. You wanted to be successful. You wanted your talent back. Well, I gave it to you. Charlie's like, but you were ready to kill yourself and I saved your life. Charlie tries to convince both of them to come with him, to enact the spell for themselves, to rejuvenate themselves so that they can start their whole lives over again, the three of them. Jay is completely against this. He's like, I, I, no, we're not going to do that. Who else has to die so that we can be young again? What's the price tag on immortality? He's like, it's just wrong. Vernon is talking like he's at least a little bit tempted. He's like, Jay, we could be young again. But before they can resolve it, Sam and Dean barge in. They know exactly what's happened. Sam and Dean have guns drawn. They shoo away Vernon and Jay, leaving Charlie on stage. And Dean's like, yeah, immortality, neat trick. And Charlie's like, it's not a trick. It's magic. And a noose drops down over Dean's neck and pulls him up. Sam attempts to shoot Charlie, but he catches the bullet in his teeth. As Sam is about to fire again, Charlie disappears and reappears over by the side of the stage, near where a rope is dangling. He tries to force Charlie to release Dean. Sam just strikes at him, and he disappears again. He reappears behind Sam pushes him onto the table of death where the manacles lock him in place and the rope begins fraying and snapping about to drop the table of death on him. But before Dean can be hanged to death or Sam can be impaled by the table of death, Charlie is just watching like satisfied that he's taking care of both of these guys when he grimaces and his stomach is bleeding He's been stabbed, and he glances over at Jay, who has stabbed himself in the stomach, and then holds up the deck of tarot cards. Charlie pulls one card out of his own pocket, and he knows Jay set him up. He probably pickpocketed the deck of cards out of Charlie's pocket when they were first talking. And Charlie's like heartbroken. He's like, you picked these strangers over me. The spells holding Sam and Dean in place release when Charlie dies. Dean drops 
Sam's freed from the table of death and flips off just in time before all the knives come crashing down on him. Meanwhile, Jay is heartbroken that he's just killed the best friend he ever had. He couldn't live with the truth of this horrific black magic his friend was willing to use. But Vernon, he's horrified too, and likely at least a little bit upset that he lost his chance at immortality or just renewed youth. Later that night, Sam and Dean find Jay depressed again, having a drink in that same bar, unable to shuffle a deck of cards. His own magical gift has failed again. Dean tries to convince Jay that Charlie would never have given up what he was doing. He would have just kept on forever and that he did the right thing. And Jay is like, are you sure about that? Charlie was like my brother and now he's dead because I did the right thing. And isn't this what Dean has been struggling with since season one, honestly? Protect your little brother feeling that he's nothing without Sam and he would do anything to save him. But sometimes the right thing is letting him go and seeing this dark side in Sam come out now, what will Dean think is the right thing? And of course, Sam is viewing this through a different lens. Jay is saying, he offered me a gift and I just threw it back in his face. He offered me this real magic that this whole episode has been paralleled with whatever creepy thing Sam is doing with Ruby, drinking the demon blood. It's a gift that Dean has told Sam to stay away from. And Dean understands that whatever he's doing to get these powers, it's wrong because it's demon powers. And even the angels told him it was wrong. So where is the moral line for Sam and Dean here? Is Sam supposed to think, oh, I don't want to turn out to be like Jay, old and alone. I want to do what I can. I have this ability, this gift that I'm not going to throw back. I'm going to take advantage of it the way Jay didn't and regrets not doing, even if other people get hurt in the process. How many casual bystanders had to die if Jay had accepted Charlie's deal? The waitress, as Jay is leaving, is like, Jay, you forgot your cards. And he turns back to her and is like, throw him away. He's completely quitting magic. And God, I hate to talk about the series finale, but isn't that kind of exactly what happens in the series finale? Sam just gets old and depressed and sad and cries about the old times, but never goes back and actually hunts anymore. He just throws in the towel and dies old and alone. Well, I mean, he's got his son, but... It's effectively alone because we have no emotional connection to his son with Faceless Woman. So it's kind of got the same vibe, which is really depressing when you think about it, isn't it? Dean says to Sam, I don't know about you, but I could go for a beer. And Sam's just like, I'm going to take a walk. And we can see that Dean is worried about Sam and kind of suspects there's things that Sam is not telling him. And then we see in the shadows outside in a deserted alleyway, sort of reminiscent of where Dean was sent to find the chief earlier. Heck, it might even be the same alley from a different viewpoint where Sam gets into a car and Ruby's driving and he says, okay, I'm in. She asks what made him change his mind. And Sam says, I don't want to be doing this when I'm an old man. They drive off into the night, and that is where the episode ends. 
And I know I've, I've already talked about all the salient points, I think, already during this episode, so I don't really have a big summary, except to note that for Sam, I think he's looking at this problem all wrong. Ruby is offering him a solution to stop the apocalypse, a very specific, limited-term proposition. Stop Lilith from breaking the seals so we can stop the apocalypse. That won't stop any of the other things that would not have stopped these magicians from using black magic to kill people. That wouldn't stop ghosts from haunting people. That wouldn't stop vampires and werewolves and every other monster and problem that they confront of a supernatural nature. That only would stop the very specific apocalypse that they are working on stopping. It wouldn't even stop all demons from coming to Earth or angels from meddling in their affairs now that they know that angels are real. Sam has this notion that if only he can stop the apocalypse, all the rest of it will end as well. And that's magical thinking in itself. There was never a promise of all the bad supernatural stuff stopping if only they could stop Lilith from breaking the seals. That was never on the table or in the cards, should we say, considering this is a sleight of hand episode. But Sam believes it, and that's causing part of this disconnect. Ruby's not disabusing him of that notion. Dean doesn't know enough to talk around to where Sam is actually at mentally. And it's just a mess. It really is kind of all Sam's fault. Anyway. We will not belabor that point in this episode because there's still 10 more episodes to go this season before Sam's strange belief system causes the complete collapse and into the apocalypse. But this will have to be enough until next week when we'll discuss season four, episode 13, after school special, where we'll get some quality flashbacks to young Sam and Dean. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at spngeorge or at Mittens Morgul. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865, or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. Man, I was at the Supernatural convention in DC over the weekend, and I wore my N95 the entire time, but I've got some sort of weird con crud thing happening. Well, it's basically just a runny nose, but... Apologies if I didn't catch all the sniffles on editing, but man, I've been sniffling this entire episode, and I, who knows what even came out of that con as far as illnesses go, but I only took my mask off when I was eating and riding in baby, which I got to do. Well, Grace, technically, who used to belong to my friend Zerby, and the new owners graciously allowed us to take her for a spin, so we drove her around the block, and there's video of it on my Tumblr, but... That was kind of the highlight. It's always fun to get a ride in a classic car, but especially in, you know, a 67 Impala. Anyway, I hope I don't have any kind of, like, illness. So, (laughs) we'll see how this goes. Hopefully it's just exhaustion combined with talking too much. Anyway, have a good one, everyone.